of Worship, your source for commentary and discussion on worship, theology, and culture. I'm your host, Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. Well, hello and welcome to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones uh, here today in Psalm 31 of the Psalm Project. We are moving along. So I expect to be at least halfway finished through the Psalms, halfway through the Psalms by the end of 2022. If not more, my goal is to be around 90 in the 90s, uh, somewhere around there. Uh, so that here we are at Psalm 31, beginning the second fifth of uh, the Psalm project. And so, uh, as I mentioned early on, this will be a lengthy project. It has been a blessing to me. I hope it has been to you. And so here we are at Psalm 31, another song likely written by David. Um, so. We're gonna. Re- I'm going to read through this, and then I'm going to do a little something different because musically, the way I have said it is a little different, and that's my goal in doing this too. Is I want to be as creative as possible and use all kinds of different elements, musical elements, in setting these psalms. So, let's take a look at this Psalm 31, beginning in verse one. In you, O Lord, do I take refuge. Let me never be put to shame. In your righteousness, deliver me. Incline your ear to me, rescue me speedily. Be a rock, be a rock of refuge for me, a strong fortress to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress, and for your name's sake you lead and guide me. You take me out of the net they have hidden for me, for you are my refuge. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord, faithful God. I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols, but I trust in the Lord. I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love because you have seen my affliction. You have known the distress of my soul, and you have not delivered me into the hand of the enemy. You have set my feet in a broad place. Be gracious to me, O Lord, for I am in distress. My eye is wasted from grief, my soul and my body also. For my life is spent with sorrow and my years with sighing. My strength fails because of my iniquity and my bones waste away. Because of all my adversaries, I have become a reproach, especially to my neighbors and an object of dread to my acquaintances. Those who see me in the street flee from me. I have been forgotten like one who is dead. I have become like a broken vessel, for I hear the whispering of many terror on every side, as they scheme together against me, as they plot to take my life. But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. My times are in your hand. Rescue me from the hand of my enemies and from my persecutors. Make your face shine on your servant. Save me in your steadfast love. O Lord, let me not be put to shame, for I call upon you. Let the wicked be put to shame. Let them go silently to Sheol. Let the lying lips be mute, 
which speak insolently against the righteous and in pride and contempt. Oh, how abundant is your goodness, which you have stored up for those who fear you and worked for those who take refuge in you in the sight of the children of mankind. In the cover of your presence, you hide them from the plots of men. You store them in your shelter from the strife of tongues. Blessed be the Lord, for he has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me. When I was in a besieged city, I had said in my alarm, I am cut off from your sight, but you heard the voice of my pleas for mercy when I cried to you for help. Love the Lord, all you saints. The Lord preserves the faithful, but abundantly repays the one who acts in pride. Be strong and let your heart take courage, all you who wait for the Lord. All right, so let's dig into this, Psalm 31. Just break it down, starting from the beginning. Uh, The psalmist here speaks of the righteousness of God, and really the whole theme of this psalm is the psalmist is committing his spirit into the hands of the Lord. In the midst of his enemies, in the midst of all of his trials and his struggles, he is committing his spirit to the Lord. Uh, we remember a a similar phrase on the cross when Jesus said, Into your hands I commit my spirit. I am currently setting the seven last words of Christ on the cross to music. And that is one that I haven't reached yet. I haven't started composing that particular saying uh, but you see often a lot of, um, shall I say, prophecy, a lot of uh, foreshadowing in the Psalms for what will come through Jesus Christ. And you also see Jesus Christ reflecting back on the Psalms in his earthly ministry. And so in verse 1, the psalmist here, David, he says, uh, Let me never be put to shame in your righteousness deliver me. And so he appeals to the Lord's righteousness in his distress, which is called caused by the wickedness, the opposite of the enemy. So he says, your righteousness and focuses on your righteousness and it, your righteousness. And it indicates God's commitment to save those who are in a covenant relationship with him, including us. And so then we get to verse five, where he says, into your hand, I commit my spirit. Jesus quoted these words on the cross in Luke 23. We see that. And so the desperate cries of this lament are found often in the Psalms, and it expresses Christ's own anguish as he faced the rejection of the world. And we see similar wording in this Psalm, but also in Psalm 22, which we've already already covered, and in Psalm 69. And then in verse 6, he says, I hate those who pay regard to worthless idols. Uh, This is a a strong word, and people sometimes don't want to use this. They think, well, God is love. He doesn't hate anyone. Yet he does. He hates wickedness. He hates the wicked. And and we're told that he loved Jacob but hated Esau. And, and people try to twist that and say, well, no, he hated what he represented. No, he, he can hate. <laughs> love can hate what is the opposite of love. And so God hates what evil is, and he hates those who are evil. And so David here says, I hate those who pay regard 
to worthless idols. They're worthless because they are figments of the worshippers' imaginations. And we often, I've talked about idolatry before, where idolatry certainly is worshiping, say, a statue or a wooden figure or something like that, but it is also placing anything before the Lord. And so we do that in our own daily lives and need to repent of that. And so the psalmist here says that he trusts in the Lord who is faithful. Verse 7, he says, I will rejoice and be glad in your steadfast love. That is specifically the love between covenant partners, God and David, which moves God to respond to his distress. In verse 10, my strength fails because of my iniquity. Severant, uh, several ancient translations here have read affliction rather than iniquity, which draws support from the psalm's general theme of distress from the outside forces rather than his own guilt. And so there is that interpretation here. Verse 12. I have been forgotten like the one who is dead. I have become a broken vessel. This is a metaphor for a serious illness, perhaps, even death. As we read in Ecclesiastes 12, 6, before the silver, before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel broken at the cistern. In other words, the psalmist here is speaking of his frailty and probably alluding to his serious illness or his imminent death or what he feels is an imminent death. Keep in mind, a lot of the psalms that we have read were born out of the psalmist's real life experiences, not just his enemies confronting him, but also sickness and death. Uh, that, that, that does happen. And so we see that throughout the book of Psalms when they allude to very personal uh, experiences. Verse 14, But I trust in you, O Lord. I say you are my God. This is a simple and a foundational confession that David is in covenant with God. Verse 15, My times are in your hand. So the psalmist here knows that God controls history and his general life in particular, and he confronts him in his distress. So what God does is responds to David in his distress, not because David is just giving him a request, but because David is in covenant with him. And then another familiar phrase in the Bible, verse 16, make your face shine on your servant. This is reflective of the Aaronic benediction in a number six where Aaron himself said, The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious. So this is the priestly, what's called the Aaronic benediction. And the metaphor of God's face represents his loving presence that will bring salvation to the psalmist here. Verse 21. He has wondrously shown his steadfast love to me when I was in a besieged city. This phrase is difficult to understand, but David here could be remembering a particular incident, or it may be that the original reading was, it, rather than in a besieged city, in a difficult time. And so this is a rendering that fits the context well uh, also. So keep in mind, I've, I've discussed this before, but 
when you're reading Hebrew text and people who uh, have translated Hebrew texts have a huge task because you're, you're talking about reading an ancient language that runs from right to left, not left to right like we read, that there are no spaces between the words and there is no punctuation. And so they're reading this and trying to translate it. And sometimes there is a word there that is nowhere else in the Bible and they have not a clue what it means. And so I'll give you an example. We're familiar with the story of Joseph where his father gave him a coat of many colors. The term in the story there, that is the only place where it exists in the Bible. Nobody knows if it's a coat of many colors. It could have been a 1957 Ferrari, for all we know. We have no idea. Well, I suppose if, if he could go into the future and get a 1957 Ferrari. But either way, it could have been a camel. It could have been a house. It, it could have been anything, but translators have no idea what it is. So, so what they did is, let's put something in the Bible that is nowhere else in the Bible. That is a coat of many colors. Since this this term is nowhere else in the Bible, let's just use this. So... It may not have been a coat of many colors. In fact, it probably was not. Uh, I say all that to say that translating Scripture is a difficult, difficult task. And so when it says a besieged city, this is a metaphor, but it could have been referring to just a difficult time. A copyist's error in one letter would account for the difference of reading. And this does happen. Scribes that have copied the text of Scripture, uh, they sometimes made errors. They made mistakes. Or they put their own notes in, and this was not deviant in any way. In fact, what they were doing was trying to bring clarity to the text. Verse 23, enough canon discussion here. Uh, verse 23, his saints... The Lord, love the Lord, all you his saints. The word here is formed from the same Hebrew root, hesed, uh, steadfast love. And it's understood as God's loving kindness towards those who are in covenant relationship with him. And so this psalm, yes, a plea to God, but also, again, as you read the psalms, you look and see how the psalmist has refocused his attention not on his difficulties, but on who God is. And so he calls for the saints of God to worship him because he is worthy, and he is the one who hears our prayer. So what I have done with this musically is a little different. I have sort of turned it into a modern chant. Um, I will not go into the details of, of chant, but um, many people know the term Gregorian chant. Uh, that was, that's named after Pope Gregory. He did not create chant, but he was the Pope when that sort of became standardized. Um, early on in Christian worship, when notation became available, um, right now, if you read music, you have a five-lined staff. Uh, the first, if you want to call it a staff, was one line. And then the notes, if you will, the, the symbols were put either above or below or on the line. And depending on how far above or below it was, that would tell you how far above or below to sing. And then some genius decided, well, let's add two lines. That would even give us more clarity, you know. We could know exactly where to sing. 
and still not perfect, but then somebody said, let's do three lines, and then we have even more clarity on how to sing these these chants, if you will, and, and it was in Latin, okay? Um, Latin became kind of a general language used in worship, particularly in medieval worship and even in Renaissance worship. It wasn't until the Protestant Reformation that the vernacular became a standardized form of uh, language for, for worship. Well, then eventually somebody said, let's do four lines. I think that would be great. Let's, let's just, let's have four lines. And so that's what they did. And by the 13th century, Gregorian chant, as we know it, was written with square notation and they're not called notes. Okay. These were called nooms. These were called nooms, not notes. And, um, uh, nooms is spelled N-E-U-M-E-S. That's nooms. So if you ever see a chant, I you know I want to I want to get a sheet of plain chant from a chant book from an old chant book and frame it and hang it on my wall. And if you ever see the notation on a, on a chant, um, it is those are nooms. Those are not notes. You will also notice um, when you. Uh, when you look at these nooms, that there are no staffs. Um, they're, they're, they're just dots. They're on the four-lined staff. There, there are no flags or you know quarter notes or eighth notes or anything like that. Um, I have posted a chant on my blog, on my website. If you go to jonathanjones.tv, you can um, click the link that goes to my blog. And this particular episode, this photograph of, of this chant that I'm about to show you will be there and you could kind of read, read along and kind of see what I'm talking about, about the nooms. So when you look at a sheet of plain chant music, of chant music, you, you will see the four-lined staff and then you will see what, it looks sort of like, a, almost like a, a telephone or a C and it is centered over one of the lines of the staff. That symbol there, that telephone looking thing means that that line is as if that was C middle C. It doesn't mean it's C. Okay. Keep in mind, we didn't have standard tuning in the medieval period. That didn't come around till about the 18th or 19th century. Uh, so there was not standard tuning, but, but what that means is that the intervals above and below that line, wherever that telephone looking thing is, are in proportion, in relation to as if that were C. And uh, so, so that that's how plain chant is written. Plain chant also, you will notice, is not metered. In other words, when you look at a sheet of plain chant music, there is no time signature. There's no 4-4 four, four, or 3-4 or 6-8. It is not metered. It is supposed to be free and... Um, uh, you know, without meter, then that, that was pretty common. You will also notice if you look at a sheet of old chant music, many times there is no composer listed. That's because the most famous composer of the medieval period is Anonymous the Fourth. I say that as a joke, but there, there, there really uh, usually is no composer referenced because the purpose of chant was worship. It was not for the composer or the writer to be known. And so you will see that. You'll also see Latin text. 
Uh, I will show you an example of this picture that I posted again on my blog, on my website, and it is on the uh, YouTube recording of this pro- uh, this podcast. Um, I'll just go ahead and sing the first line of text on that so you kind of get an idea of what I'm talking about. Uh, the text that I've posted or that, that I'm looking at here is the Salve Regina. Salve Regina. Um let me read the beginning part of the Latin text. Salve Regina Mater Misericordiae, uh, cor- sorry, Cordiae, Vita Dulcedo et Spes Nostra Salve, Ad Te Clamamus Exules Filie Heve. And so it goes on and on. Let me read you the translation of this. Hail, Holy Queen, Mother of Mercy, our life, our sweetness, and our hope. To thee we do cry, poor banished children of Eve. To thee we do send up our sighs, mourning and weeping in this valley of tears. Turn then, O O most gracious advocate, thine eyes of mercy toward us, and after this our exile show us the blessed fruit of thy womb, Jesus. O clement, O loving, O sweet Virgin Mary. So this is off, uh, this is um, obviously a hymn to the Virgin Mary. And I do not at all advocate worshiping Mary. (laughs) Okay, so that's not what I'm doing here. I'm doing this to give you an example of plain chant. You you also find plain chant chant texts that are related to Easter, Christmas, um, uh, not always to Mary. Um, That's not what I'm advocating for here. But you can see an example of this chant. Now, what I've done with this psalm, I've taken a long time to discuss this. Uh, What I've done with this psalm is written a refrain for it, and then most, uh, there are five stanzas, the, the psalm is divided into five, five stanzas, and they are chanted, but it is a metered chant, so it is sort of a um, a modern version, a modern way of employing chant, and so um, I will, let me show you the Salve Regina real quick, okay? So here's how this will go. If you were to hear plain chant in a modern, even in a, you know, say a liturgical or Catholic church today, it would probably sound like this as it would centuries ago in the medieval period. And so here's the, just the first few lines of the Salve Regina that I just read to you. Salve Regina, Mater Misericordiae. Vita dulce do, et spes nostra salve. So that's how that would go. Okay, and um, so what I've done here is sort of made it into a chant, but again, it is metered. It is in a 4-4 time, and there is piano accompaniment under it. Um. Without going into too much music history again, um, just know that there is a sung refrain that would be, if this was used in corporate worship, it would be intended to be sung by the congregation and then the rest of the uh, stanzas chanted by someone. And so uh, a little different, but hopefully this uh, gives you a little bit of uh, a creative way to do Psalm 31 to understand the text. And so I hope you enjoy this. Thank you for listening today to the Act of Worship podcast. This is Dr. Jonathan Michael Jones. 
adversaries mock me My neighbors look with dread My friends did not come near me They turned around and fled Forgotten like a dead man I'm like a broken pot Their whispers terrify me Because my death they plot I say you are my God Lord with faith in you I stand Save me from persecutors My times are in your hand Oh may light from your presence Upon your servant shine And in your loving kindness Make salvation mine Hear my prayer Oh Lord Rescue me Be Not to shame, Lord I trust in you to save Let shame confound the wicked Brought speechless to the grave Let lying lips be silenced So insolent and vain They speak against the righteous With words of proud disdain How great the good you've gathered for those revering you Stored up for all who trust you Where sons of men may view Within your secret presence There you preserve their life Away from whispered scheming And far from tongues of strife Hear my prayer city I faced the enemy I said when filled with panic I'm cast out from your sight but still you heard my pleading when I cried out in fright oh love the Lord you godly the Lord the faithful keeps but one whose deeds are haughty Full of recompense he reaps So then be strong and steadfast And let your heart be brave All you wait with patience Wait on the Lord to save Hear my prayer Oh Lord Rescue me
Say 